0: Thank <music> you. Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome renowned vaccine and infectious disease expert Dr. Peter Hotez on the Omicron subvariant driven COVID surge, vaccine efficacy, and confronting the anti science movement.
1: I worry that this vaccine resistance refusal is not going to halt at COVID 19 vaccinations, but it's going to become a more universal phenomenon on childhood vaccinations.
0: Laurie Robertson checks in from factcheck.org, and we end with a bright idea improving health and well being in everyday life. Now, here are your hosts. Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter.
2: Our guest is a renowned vaccine developer and pediatric infectious disease expert who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but now he's battling his own case of breakthrough COVID.
3: Dr. Peter Hotez is acclaimed for helping to create a patent free COVID 19 vaccine. It's been called the world's vaccine. Dr. Hotez joins us from Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development at the Baylor College of Medicine.
2: Dr. Hotez, we saw you at the beginning of the year and thank you for being back, but we understand you're testing positive for COVID. Nearly uh, 60% of Americans have caught the virus, including most children, according to the CDC. How are you feeling? And tell us about your treatment.
1: Well, I'm feeling good. Um, I'm on uh, Paxlovid. um, And I think one of the reasons I'm doing well is because I'm fully vaccinated and double boosted. So that's the difference between being in a hospital bed and uh, speaking to you on Zoom, comparing bow ties. And so I think, uh, uh, doing quite well, which I attribute primarily to the vaccination, although probably the Paxlovid's helping well. So a little bit of headache and, uh, and sore throat and some congestion, but overall do, doing pretty well, and to which I attribute to the modern miracles of science.
2: We're glad to hear that.
3: Absolutely. And Dr. Hotez, thanks for joining us. Uh, in the middle of all this. And uh, I will say I'm very glad we're living in 2022 now and not 2020 pre-vaccine, pre-paxlovid. But there's an op-ed in STAT from a primary care doctor that says, well, there was only a single trial for the drug. It included only unvaccinated people. Uh, this primary care doctor says he's left guessing if it'll help vaccinated people like you. What are your thoughts on that subject?
1: Well, it should. It should help vaccinated individuals. I'm um, wondering if you know. Sometimes when you're trying to release for emergency use authorization, um, it's sometimes uh, difficult to get all of the eyes dotted and T's crossed when you're moving uh, quickly. But uh, you know, I think it's a it's a good drug. The evidence was pretty solid. There's no reason why to believe it would not work well. And and I think the bigger issue is, given this BA two one two. The approval and all the clinical trials were done before BA212 hit, and maybe that's the game changer, that the amount of virus um, virus replication is much higher, and so potentially we need a longer course of treatment um, than than five days, because there's right now a number of relapses. In other words, you take that five-day course, you're feeling better, you finish, you test negative. And then a number of people are now turning positive again and having rebound symptoms. In some cases, the rebound symptoms are worse than the original. And that was seen about 1% to 2% of the time in the clinical trials. Anecdotally, it's happening at a much higher frequency now. So I understand the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration are all looking into it right now. And hopefully soon we'll have some answers there.
2: It seems to be understandable on emergency use authorization, but we don't seem to have a lot of data from CDC about what are we seeing in terms of who's in that hospital, more likely people who haven't been vaccinated. We're just not seeing a lot of information on strategies to avoid the vaccine. What's the real chance outdoors? Can I go inside with a mask and have dinner if I just keep my mask on? And it seems like we have a paucity of data on people's experience from the CDC. What's your thought about uh, what's lacking here or or is this the best we can get?
1: I think what's missing is we don't give accurate and timely advice based on community levels of transmission. And and that's what it comes down to. Whether or not you can go to an indoor gathering um, safely or eat in a restaurant safely very much depends, I think, on levels of, of community transmission. So. When we're at a nadir, when we're in between waves, I think there's a lot more we can do. We have a lot more flexibility than when you're starting to see a, a big wave accelerate. That's point one. So when, for instance, when you're on the upswing of the Omicron wave, um, which was the worst in terms of number of new mm-hmm. cases, we saw lots of people getting infected even with breakthrough infection, although those were not as severe, as opposed to on the downside of things. And I think the same is true right now for this BA212 uh, current wave. You know, when it started, I was kind of hopeful that there'd be some pre-existing immunity with Omicron as well as the people who were vaccinated, so it'd be more than of a, a bump than a wave. And indeed you didn't see the numbers going up very precipitously, so I was starting to feel comfortable. But I think what happened was um so many people are doing home testing and are positive and are not registering with the Centers mm-hmm. for Disease Control that we're missing that wave You know, throughout this pandemic we've underestimated the number of new cases generally by a factor of four or five i think what's happening now is they're probably being underestimated by a factor of ten or maybe more because of that Mm underreporting so the official numbers are about a hundred thousand new cases a day which is still pretty high but most likely that's more like a million cases a day so i think that's that's point one i think point two the CDC, you know, was aware of the importance of getting people to understand levels of community transmission, and they put out this hybrid map—a hybrid map of levels of community transmission, together with hospitalizations. And because the hospitalizations are not going up that much, the g- map looks like a what I call a field of green, you know, meaning that it's pretty much safe across the country except for some areas in Maine and up in the Northeast. I think that was misleading. I think what they should have done is focus exclusively on maps of community transmission, not factoring in the hospitalization so people could accurately assess their risk. And when you do that, well, everything's lit up in red um, across the Northeast from the mid-Atlantic states up into New England states and then where you are and, and then into uh, Michigan and Minnesota and then in California and the mm-hmm. Southwest. And then we get a much more accurate picture of what's going on. The bottom line, the level of transmission is so high right now. If you go to any indoor event without a mask, um, there's a good chance you're going to get infection or breakthrough infection. And I think there could have been a little more transparency about that Mm -hmm. point.
3: Well, Dr. Hotez, one, I want to thank you for having been such a steady uh, and informed voice for us over these uh, last couple of years. And, and, And two, I think if I went back and looked at all of our conversations I would be left with if I only knew then what we know now, this constant kind of wave of new infection has been one of the hardest things for people to understand. But with the vaccines, what we consistently have said to people is the chance of you being seriously ill or being hospitalized is vastly reduced if you're vaccinated. And then we added Paxlovid as a- uh,
1: And well, a, actually I'd say vaccinated and boosted. And vac- I can't yes, stress I, enough I, the I have to remember that. Fully vaccinated and boosted. Yeah, we still have that very poor messaging. I, I don't understand, you know, so we have to stop calling fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated because it's not, it's two right. doses. And yep. we are seeing a lot of hospitalizations mm-hmm. among those individuals, especially if they're a few months out. So it really depends how far out you are from your last dose, and and I think we need to emphasize that more. Even after the third dose with with Omicron, what we saw is after four or five months, the protection against hospitalizations is around 78% against emergency room visits, 66%. still good, but not nearly as good as it was, and hence the reason for the recommendation of the second booster. And we're not pumping out that kind of information enough. Only about thirty percent of the US population has gotten their first booster. And now when you look at the second booster, it's me (laughs) and a few others. Right. So we're we're doing very bad. Yeah, the three of us. So we're 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 all second boosted, but I think you know, we've not really gotten the urgency of doing that out. And then I think we also need a longer term plan for the nation because what happens as the immunity wanes from the second booster again it's still going to hold up okay against hospitalizations and uh, emergency room visits but not as good as it could so is this plan now that we continuously boost every few months knowing that the american people are just not accepting it or do we look at a larger vaccine strategy for the nation i'm of the opinion then maybe we need to look past mRNA vaccines and look at some heterologous boosting with protein based vaccines, um, in order to give more robust, more durable protection. Cause what you really want is you want to keep this up for four or five years if you can. And that's what happens with other vaccines. I think we don't know is is there something about mRNA? Is there something about this unique Omicron or BA two one two variant that's not holding up as well? All that needs to be looked at and of recommended to the White House to really hold a vaccine summit of experts to kind of track some of those. Well, is there
2: anybody doing those types of uh, tests now? Is there any trials going on uh, exploring this? Because there also seems to be sort of of a black hole here in terms of information about other vaccines that are being developed and where they are in trials right now. It's a mystery. I'm not sure why all this is
1: a mystery. Yeah, we're we're doing this with our vaccine in India, but there's no mRNA vaccine in India. So we're looking at booster studies with the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, followed by our vaccine or the Chinese-inactivated virus vaccine. But I think there needs to be a, a larger study looking at mRNA followed by a number of other newly available vaccines that have come online.
2: What about the India uh, results? 30 million children have received the vaccine. You helped develop that. What type of impact are you hearing about it on the ground?
1: It seems to be well accepted. It's got a great safety profile. We're not seeing the myocarditis, um, which is great. And, Mm -hmm. And you'd expect the safety profile to be pretty good because it's similar to the technology used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that's been around for decades, and has one of the best safety profiles out there. So, so we're quite pleased, and now 30 million have gotten the first dose, about 10 million or so have gotten the second dose. That's in the 12 to 14-year-olds. We're waiting for the approval in the 5 to 11-year-olds, as well as a booster for adults. And we're also waiting for the green light for, from the World Health Organization to release this for emergency use listing globally, which will also make a big difference.
3: But that is uh, exciting news But we're seeing such vaccine uh, hesitancy here. And we wonder, do you see this kind of vaccine hesitancy in other countries the way we're seeing it here? Or is there, a, is there a different role, message, communication about public health and what you need to do in other countries than here in the U.S.?
1: Well, the U.S., vaccine refusal resistance has some unique features to it and that is it's much more highly politicized and this started about seven eight years ago even before the pandemic with this health freedom movement that says you can't tell us what to do about vaccines and then with covid 19 groups especially in the more conservative states and texas and the southern states began to see vaccine resistance or defiance as a um as a form of allegiance to this these kinds of political leanings it makes absolutely no sense and it's so self-defeating so i'm quite concerned about that that that's what's happening and now it's spilling over into other pediatric uh, vaccines as as well and so i worry that this vaccine resistance refusal is not going to halt at covid 19 vaccinations but is going to become a more universal phenomenon around childhood vaccinations so I'm worried for the future, that we've not really been able to contain anti-vaccine activism and sentiments very well, and so this is going to continue to accelerate.
2: And it's roiling the political environment too, obviously. At a time when masking should be taking place indoors, we're seeing politicians sort of back off from uh, taking those actions. Certainly, would like to hear your thoughts on that, but maybe also some thoughts on how effective a mask is if it's an N95 and worn properly and then if I'm outdoors, am I pretty safe outdoors? Any type of transmission that happens outdoors? Well,
1: if you're outdoors in a relatively uncrowded area, it, it's, it's okay. If you're outdoors at, at Fenway Park and it's on a Sunday afternoon and completely packed, that's a different story, but that that's a little bit unusual. But so generally speaking, if you're outdoors, you don't necessarily need a mask, provided you're a really low population density where you are. Remember, the masks work both ways. It helps if you have a mask on to reduce the likelihood of inhaling um, via aerosol, the COVID-19 virus, but it works especially well if the person next to you has a mask on and is not exhaling COVID-19 virus. So, you know, the efficiency of masks Goes up dramatically. There's a synergy when both, when everyone has a mask on, both those who are releasing COVID nineteen particles and those who are inhaling it, and and that's what we're missing now with so few people masked.
3: Mm-hmm. Dr. Hotez, the second global COVID nineteen summit was recently held and resulted in about three billion dollars more in new financial commitments. Do you see the uh, funds going to the right places and the right causes from your perspective? Uh, were you satisfied with how that all came down?
1: Well, just having the acknowledgement that this is a global crisis and recognizing that these are how our next variants of concern are arising um, is really important. You know, I think by being so slow to vaccinate the African countries and South Asia and Latin America early on, we missed an opportunity to prevent that. Now we're trying to play catch up, you know, that also allowed the anti-vaccine groups to to move in. So you're starting to see some of those doses go unused uh, as well. And that's why we're hopeful for our vaccine because it it's, it's, might be better accepted because it's a technology that parents have already used for their kids for decades, similar to the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. So I do think it'll help. I, we do have to make more vaccines accessible. But I think getting more vaccine doses donated is a critically important step, but it's not the only step. We've got to figure out a way to counter this very aggressive vaccine hesitancy that really accelerated in the U.S. during this time of COVID-19, but now it's starting to contaminate low- and middle-income countries. So mm. I would have liked to see a little more language around that in terms of what, what they're planning on doing.
2: You know, we've moved away from having conversations about new variants that are out there, but wh- what are you seeing out there? And this sub-variant is one that's spreading like wildfire across the country, but anything new on the horizon that you're concerned about?
1: Well, I think, I'm hoping that will start to go down um, as we hit and go into June. And then the question is, what's next? You know, in South Africa, there's now another variation on the theme called BA-4, BA-5, will that accelerate? I think that's that's one of the things I'm looking at. I'm also a little worried about later in the summer and into the early fall, because historically that's when we saw a variance of concern out of Texas and the Southern United States in 20, both in 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. So I have to believe in 2022, we'll still be vulnerable to that. So the big questions are when BA-2 goes down, when if BA4 BA5 have a role in the United States at all, and then moving in later in the summer and fall, are we vulnerable for a variant TBD to be determined um, <laughs> about that? And I don't think we we really know. Um, but because we're not doing a great job vaccinating the world, that's a concern. And then over the winter as well. So, you know, my initial hope was that you know 2022 would be the year where the pandemic winds down. It doesn't look that way. I think we have to keep our uh, tray tables locked in the upright position and our seat, <laughs> our seats forward, and and seat belts snugly fastened around our waist, at least for the rest of this year, and then maybe twenty twenty three will be the year.
3: Well, Doctor Hotez, looking forward, the White House has suggested that we could see one hundred million infections this fall. You have stated that 1 million American deaths, which did get a lot of attention in The Times and other places uh, recently due to COVID, was a choice. Um, do you think the country has accepted that this was in fact a choice that we made and that we're accepting infections this high in our future? Or do you think the country thinks that we're still prepared to fight this?
1: I don't think we've had a good accounting for um, the fact that you know after May 1 last year, When the Biden White House announced that anyone who wants to get a vaccine could get vaccinated, the fact that we still had two big waves of death with Delta and Omicron, Mm -hmm. including 200,000 Americans who refused to get vaccinated, who lost their lives, that was an unforced error. That was totally unnecessary. So we haven't had that accounting of, you know, we still call it misinformation or disinformation. What it is is anti-vaccine, anti-science aggression, and it came from um, members of the House Freedom Caucus in the U.S. Congress. It came from those anti-vaccine sentiments were amplified nightly on Fox News, And, and we've never really had that truth and reconciliation that those lives did not have to be lost, and I think that I'd like to see us come to terms with and that's a hard conversation to have right especially if you're a scientist because all of my training as a physician scientist says you're not supposed to talk about republicans and democrats and liberals or conservatives we're supposed to be beyond all that but i don't know how you get past it unless you have that discussion and you know it's been well documented now by the new york times and axios and the kaiser family foundation Um, that the vaccine refusal and deaths occurred along a partisan divide, and yet we're afraid to talk about it because Mm -hmm. talking about politics is considered impolite in this kind of discussion at best, or we get accused ourselves of politicizing this when I'm really doing it to save lives. Everyone's entitled to their conservative views, even extreme conservative views, but don't adopt this one. And so trying to thread that needle, I think, is a tough conversation to have. Mm-hmm. I think the other tough conversation to have is around long COVID. Um, in some ways, the million deaths is just the beginning. Um, we're looking at a whole generation, potentially, of Americans who, especially if among the unvaccinated, because vaccination seems to reduce your risk of long COVID, who are suffering from respiratory insufficiency and heart palpitations and neurocognitive decline and gray matter brain degeneration because of this. How do we, how do we handle that as a nation? And, and the fact that we, our health systems are not as strong as we'd like them to be. And now you're going to throw in literally millions of Americans with long COVID. And how does our, how do our health systems cope with that? How do our How do we manage this at the insurance level and and managing people who are going to take early retirement now because of disability or who have to leave the workforce one reason or another? That's going to be the next big thing that we're not even beginning to have that discussion.
2: Yeah, and clearly the health system is, is not equipped to handle, I think, long COVID. And another thing it might not be equipped to talk about or be ready to address what are your thoughts uh, about the likelihood of a, another pandemic in, in, in our readiness?
1: Well, you know, we've had SARS in 2002. We had MERS in 2012. COVID-19 was the worst of all. But we may have another big coronavirus pandemic mm-hmm. um, because, and exactly why we're seeing these coronavirus waves, you know, is it because of you know, these originate from bats? Is it... Um, deforestation are we you know r- aggressive urbanization encroaching onto animal habitats is that the basis for the Ebola epidemics that we've seen in Democratic Republic of Congo or in West Africa um, I think you know we need a better global system in place, um, especially around this concept of one health, that is diseases transmitted from animals to humans, which seem to be accounting for some of our worst epidemics, which includes also Nipah virus, as I said, Ebola, and also now this monkeypox, which Mm -hmm. is, I don't think this is going to go too far, but that's another illness that's transmitted from animals to humans. And, Mm -hmm. And as we continue to Um, uh, take down sections of our our rainforest people are coming into contact with animals now for the first time ever humans more humans live in urban environments and rural environments Uh, and then climate change and i've written about this in my last book called preventing the next pandemic all of the big social determinants together with climate change are some of the big drivers now
3: Well, Dr. Hotez, uh, we wish you well, as always. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you also to our audience for being here. And remember, you can learn more about conversations on healthcare. Sign up for our updates by going to chcradio.com. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: A string of unexplained hepatitis cases in children has been reported in the U.S. and in other countries. The cause is not yet known, but the top suspect so far is a strain of adenovirus. Contrary to some social media posts, there is no evidence that COVID-19 vaccination is involved. Most of the children are too young to even qualify for the vaccine. In April, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization issued alerts about a number of unusual, severe hepatitis cases in children due to an unknown cause. Across the globe, around 170 cases have been identified as of late April. Hepatitis is often associated with several well-known hepatitis viruses, but the condition itself refers to inflammation of the liver, which could be due to a variety of causes. Health authorities are still investigating to understand what is causing the rare hepatitis in these children. Many, but not all, of the kids have tested positive for adenovirus the adenovirus family, which typically cause mild illness in healthy children. Most of the affected children have not been vaccinated for COVID-19, so there is no indication that COVID-19 vaccination could be the cause. In the U.S., the first reports of unusual hepatitis in children occurred in Alabama between October and February. Nine children were treated in the hospital for severe hepatitis. Two kids needed liver transplants. All tested negative for hepatitis viruses and SARS-CoV-2, but they were positive for adenovirus. Physicians at the University of Alabama said that parents do not need to panic, as the cases are very rare, but people should seek medical attention if a child shows signs of liver disease. The CDC is now investigating 109 cases among previously healthy children, including five deaths that occurred in the U.S., over the past seven months. Since so many of the children have tested positive for an adenovirus, many investigators consider the virus the top suspect. The cause is still very much an open question. And that's my fact check for this week.
3: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's a known fact that the current generation of American children is more obese than any previous generation. And at a Washington, D.C. community health center, Unity Healthcare, a pediatrician was in a quandary over how to tackle this growing health scourge. He began with a unique solution targeted to a teen patient whose body mass index, or BMI, had already landed her in the obese category. What he did was write a prescription for getting off the bus one stop earlier on her way to school, which made her walk the equivalent of one mile a day. Dr. Robert Tsar of Unity Community Health Center understood that without motivation to move more, kids just might not do it. The patient complied with the prescription and has moved from the obese down to the overweight category, certainly an improvement. He then decided to expand this program by working with the D.C. Parks Department, mapping out all the potential walks and play area kids have within the city's parks, mapping 380 of them so far.
0: How to get there, parking, is parking available
3: if someone's going to drive, bike racks. There's a section on pets, park safety. Dr. Czar writes park prescriptions on a special prescription pad in English and Spanish with the words RX for outdoor activity and a schedule slot that asks... When and where will you play outside this week? I like to listen and find out what it is my patients like to do and then gauge the parks I prescribe based on their interests, based on the things they're willing to do. With some 40% of his patient population grappling with overweight or obesity, he wants to make the prescription for outdoor activity adaptable for all of his patients and adaptable for pediatricians around the country. And he'd like to be able to track his patients' activities in the parks. Rx for Outdoor Activity partnering clinicians, park administrators, patients, and the families to move more, yielding fitter, healthier young people. Now that's a bright idea.
2: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.